of My family wasn't wealthy by any means. My father had been an over-the-road trucker whose career was cut short by exposure to the eruption of Mount St. Helens in May of 1980. My mother was, from that point on, the sole breadwinner in a household that had formerly been two income and had needed every bit of those two paychecks. Being a different time, however, we were still able to make it. You could probably think of us as upper, lower, middle class. I can't really speak for the times prior to the loss of my father's paycheck, as I was almost 10 when the eruption occurred and took away his livelihood and eventually his life, and I had a child's blessed blindness to such adult matters at that time. I can't speak as to how things were for my three older brothers, as I didn't meet them until much later. You know, when I was born. Looking back at home movies and picture albums, I see a world they shared with copious minibikes, go-karts, horses at the pasture. A world that, on its surface, looks incredible, but as many family stories have revealed over the years, belied a hard scrabble fight to merely survive. In those days of expensive film and long wait times for overpriced development services, pictures were usually reserved for happy occasions. Almost nobody took pictures of their food. Now, my status as a husband, father, and aging American male has made me realize how difficult times must have been. The constant medical bills from my father, who, for almost 11 years, re-entered the hospital for various heart attacks almost like clockwork. The constant needs of a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old. The demands of mortgage, utility bills, insurance, and oh, so much milk. My three eldest siblings had flown the nest by this point. The eldest to the West Coast the next a few blocks away, and the last to a state of ongoing criminality, so the pressures were eased a little. My recollection is that my sister and I had everything we needed and a great many of the things we wanted. Only time and distance have made me realize how hard my mother must have worked and struggled to provide for us. That being said, we were fortunate enough to have some cool things, things that even set us apart from some of the rich kids we knew. By some miracle, around 1978 or 1979, we owned a Pong console. Some of you just said, what? Others said, so what? Even more others aren't even listening to this podcast. Pong. Like half of Ping Pong. The actual attribution of who created the game is murky and contested. Alan Alcorn. Nolan Bushnell, Sam Dabney, the list goes on. If it had been created about 50 years earlier, Thomas Edison would have stolen the credit for it. Regardless of all this speculation, Pong was created. If you don't know what Pong is, you probably won't understand three quarters of this podcast, but I'll fill you in anyway. Pong is a video game, one of the very first video games. A rectangular black field with a solid white line down the very middle, top to bottom. On each side, a small vertical stick, or paddle, that you move up and down the screen by means of a spinning knob. A ball, which is really just a little square, bounces back and forth between the two paddles, propelled at an ever-increasing rate of speed, each player trying to bounce the ball in such a way, find just the perfect angle to slip the ball past the other player's paddle and score a point. Just electronic ping-pong, but soon to be so, so much more. Atari released Pong in 1972 as really the first video game, sliding into a few bars around the country alongside pool tables, pickle machines, shuffleboard tables, and pinball machines. 
Almost immediately, these machines became the hot item, in most cases bringing in 35 to $40 a day, a quarter at a time, in 1972. That's like almost $100 in today money. Go to the bank, get 400 quarters, stack them up on the counter at home, look at them, then put them in a bag and mail them to me. You don't deserve them because you just did something stupid that a guy on a podcast told you to do. Having seen the success of these commercial machines, some genius at Atari turned their rapacious thoughts to the home market. In 1975, Atari released a home console of Pong, bringing the edge-of-your-seat excitement of two paddles hitting a ball to your home television screen. And it was glorious. I made some sarcastic statements about Pong just now, but let me tell you, we'd never seen anything like that before. Those of you raised in a world that had the NES or any of the later consoles just wouldn't understand. The older ones of you out there who maybe grew up with the Atari 2600 or the Intellivision, unless you knew the original Pong, you won't quite get it either. Even the terrible graphics of the 2600 were miles ahead of what the Pong could do. But Pong set us on fire. Somewhere around 1978 or 79, as I said, we ended up with a Pong home console. It was used, but gently. I don't know the circumstances of its arrival. I know not who provided it. I'm not even sure I've got the date right, but that seems to be about when it showed up. I know, being eight or nine at the time, that I was interested, but not enough for it to draw me in immediately. I had Hot Wheels to play with, or dirt to eat, or something like that. Besides, I'm sure the older siblings who were around would have beaten me stupid if I'd tried to get between them and it. They were old enough, 15 and 17, that they had seen the commercial consoles out and about, so this moment was much more important to them than I. My little sister, being four or so, was more interested in her blanket and drooling. But then again, that was her main focus for most of her life. By and by, my older brothers called me into the rec room, another very 70s thing, and sat me down to try it out. My family were all intolerable douchebags, myself included, but we were never selfish. My family, in addition to being intolerable douchebags, were all very competitive. This led to some very spirited hours spent, crouched in front of the TV, stuffed full of Totino's party pizzas, vying for the Pong championship of the household. I honed my geometry skills, learning angles, opposing forces, rudimentary physics, as I propelled that digital ball back and forth, sometimes against my siblings, and once in a while, my mother, sometimes against myself, working one paddle with my left hand and one with my right, endlessly captivated by the digital contest looming like magic before my gleaming eyes. This started my lifelong, so far, affair with technology in general, and video games in specific. In very rapid fashion, the video game idea and quality shot ahead. In 1978, space invaders appeared all over the world. In 1979, asteroids loomed on the horizon. In 1980, Pac-Man was released commercially, primarily the two-person sit-down versions, although cabinet models were not too far behind. Suddenly, video games were everywhere. I remember going with my eldest brother and his girlfriend out to the local fancy pizza joint and playing the sit-down version, which I believe they call the cocktail model, of Pac-Man, marveling as quarter after quarter appeared from my brother's pocket to feed the machine. Trips to the grocery store with mom were not complete without begging for a quarter to play a game. First Pac-Man, then Donkey Kong one of my favorites to this day, then Frogger, then Kangaroo. The list went on and on. The machines would change every few months as the new hot machine would come out. My old love of pinball was supplanted, for a while, by these cabinets that confronted me at every turn. My mother, bless her black, twisted soul, managed to always find a quarter. A quarter. This required me to get good to make that quarter last. 
I tried to study patterns, learn the timing, look for the openings. There was always a pattern. Sometimes it was buried deep, but it was always there. You just had to learn it. There was a book that was published around that time, titled How to Beat the Video Games. It showed the patterns, gave you tips and tricks, even told you a little bit about the programmers. We hadn't invented the word developers yet. I checked this out from the library and then refused to return it. I'm not proud of it, but we paid the replacement costs and moved on. I think it's still in my bookcase upstairs. I'll have to check. Anyway, the phenomenon that was the burgeoning video game industry created a situation in which a perfect storm, the meeting of the twain, a nexus occurred. Someone put two pieces of a puzzle together, a puzzle that no one knew actually existed. Basic human greed was the first part of the puzzle. Video games drew the crowds and their quarters. Even in 1980, the start of the Reagan years, almost everybody could scrape together a quarter or two. Video games were complete escapism, an escapism you could buy for two bits. If you were good enough, those two bits could buy you 20 minutes or more of that escape. Which brings us to the second piece of the puzzle. People who want to get good at video games have to play video games. They also have to observe how other players play the game. People that play video games might like to hang out with other people that play video games. If I own one machine that brings in $40 a day, what if I had 20 machines surrounded by people that play video games and people that watch other people play video games? What if I sold soda? Thus was born that most amazing of places, the video arcade. It was a simple concept and reasonably simple to execute. You just needed a decent sized open room, some way to block or lessen outdoor light, then, as now, natural light was the sworn enemy of the hardcore gamer. A bathroom or two, and, if you were feeling fancy, a place to sell soda and chips. Oh, and a change machine or two. Oh yeah, you also needed some video game cabinets. That was where the price of admission got real steep. In 1981, a cabinet version video game had an average cost from three to $4,000. That's $8,600 to $11,450 in today money. Although there were some units as low as $2,000, which would put you back $5,700 today, higher-end machines could go for as much as $20,000. That's just over $57,000 today. To have a decent arcade, you needed to have at least five, and preferably ten or more games. While games were popular and brought in money, they brought it in a quarter at a time. For the plan to work, and to work profitably, you needed to create a community, a place where you hung out, watched other gamers, talked, learned, and most importantly, dumped your quarters in the slot when your favorite machine opened up. All these machines with their thick CRT screens and their huge internal mechanisms, not to mention the hormonal teenaged bodies in the room, generated massive heat, so you had to have the AC going all the time. This added to the incredibly inefficient nature of the CPU parts in the games, and you came up with a real big electricity draw. More expenses. So here we are. At that time, a video arcade was very expensive to set up, expensive to maintain, but they were also a license to print money. A few video arcades started popping up and, predictably, were incredibly successful. Suddenly, one of the toughest barriers to video arcade ownership was taken away. The amusements industry. Now that's just my name for it. I'm sure they have a much more professional name for themselves among their industry journals and newsletters. But they stepped in. The amusements industry had been around a long time. They're the folks who handled the jukeboxes and shuffleboard tables you would see in your bars, pinball machines, and pool tables. They owned them and rented them out to establishments along with service contracts. 
This is an industry that I respect very much and have done a great deal to financially support over the years. The people in the amusements industry took note of the success of the video arcades and also looked at the costs of the equipment. Then they looked at the crowds lined up 25 and 30 deep, waiting their turns to shove money into a box that goes bleep bloop, and collectively said, I gotta get a piece of this. They began buying machines and making them available to everybody with a space, some interest, and the wherewithal to sign a one-year contract. So, just as video games themselves a brief time before, seemingly overnight, video arcades were everywhere. Every town of any decent size at all had at least one, in addition to the onesie-twosie games you'd see at the laundromat, the pizza joint, the grocery store, the drugstore. They were almost unavoidable, and the kids, 12 to 17, primarily male, flocked to them. The video arcade was the promised land, sacred ground. It was new. It was hip. It was ours. There wasn't a whole lot to go and do in those days. Three stations on TV. You could play a school sport. You could get involved at church. You could be a scout. You could go dig in the dirt with a stick. We had fun, but this, this was future stuff, man. I said sacred ground, and I meant it. The local video arcade was like a watering hole where the lion and the gazelle can stand side by side and drink, allowing each other the honor of life-sustaining water before returning to the chase. It wasn't until many years later that I ever witnessed trouble in a video arcade. There was just something about the environment in those days. I had personally witnessed two guys standing in a parking lot, swearing to whatever gods happened to be listening at the moment that they would each cut the throat of the other, dancing over their twitching body as it bleeds out. The same two guys, five minutes later, stood elbow to elbow, each at a machine, playing their games, actually apologizing to each other if, in their vigorous playing, they happened to bump. Their feud was not forgotten, merely laid aside so they could enter the neutral zone that was the video arcade. Jocks would coexist with nerds. 17-year-olds could befriend and even mentor a 12-year-old. No one ridiculed anyone. Everybody just pumped their quarters in, took their turn, then stood and watched the next person up, and the person after that, and after that, until their quarter, rested on the lip of the machine, was the next one in line, and their turn came again. Tron is the greatest film that Disney ever made and I will fight you in an alley with a rusty knife if you contend otherwise. If you don't know what Tron is, I will tell you. At the risk of spoiling a 39-year-old movie with a reasonably recent sequel, Tron is, at its core, the story of a video game programmer who had all of his hard work stolen by an evil megacorporation, the sort of ridiculous fantasy that could never happen in real life. I mean, yeah, he gets zapped into a computer, gets forced to play video games for real, and meets a hot girl in a glowing leotard. But basically, it's about video games. Flynn, the main character who suffered this theft, still seems to have made out okay, as in the beginning of the film, he is shown to be the owner of an amazing video arcade. Clean, futuristic, huge, high-ceilinged, crammed wall-to-wall with all the hottest video game cabinets, full of velvet darkness broken only by tubes of neon on the walls, and the light pouring forth from the games themselves. This place was a palace. However, the only thing they got right was the darkness. Most video arcades in those days were small, cramped, and not the most scrupulously maintained places. Windows were painted over, or covered with plywood, or even cardboard to shut out the light. The games themselves provided the vast majority of the room lighting. There was usually a dim light over whatever area existed for drinks and or snacks, and of course, right over the change machine. You had to shine a beacon on the dispenser of the quarters. Almost always thin, dark carpet. The walls were frequently painted black. 
Sometimes, even the suspended ceiling tiles would have been hastily painted black as well. Some places had bare walls. Some had pictures and articles pulled out of the video game magazines that were also flourishing at the time. Some had hand-painted images representing characters from the popular games. All of this was cheap, and it had to be. When you think back on the expenses involved in obtaining the games, even through the amusement industry folks, it becomes very clear that corners were bound to be cut wherever possible. The first and most obvious question was this. If the place is always dark, do we need to work as hard at cleaning and maintaining the place? The answer to this question, at least in the majority of cases, was a resounding no, and that was that. You were lucky if the trash cans had been emptied. You learned to check the bathroom for toilet paper before committing yourself. You accepted your feet slightly sticking to the carpet from the remains of many a spilled soda. We didn't care because video games. Sure, rumor has it that there were some super arcades out there, ones that looked a lot like Flynn's did in Tron, but I'd never seen them. There were some places that came along by and by that had an arcade element, but those were different. Places like the hot dog and video game chain W.C. Franks had video games, but they weren't a video arcade as they were when they were born. It was an evolution of the original video arcade, but they just weren't the same as the arcades that popped up in old fast food restaurants, failed laundromats, old shoe stores, and the like, displaying names like Willie's Game Barn and Electric Dick's Arcade with their covered windows and dirty carpet and crowded, noisy game floor, like a modern version of the old neighborhood pool hall. And, like the pool halls of old, video arcades had a patina of the same disrepute. The same societal concerns were raised by certain segments of the community. Immorality, sloth, drugs, and the baser instincts were surely affecting the youth that had fallen under the control of these sinful places, these houses of electronic worship, this church of the unholy pixel. You would think these arcades would rival the most hedonistic of ancient cults, with wine flowing freely and all the pleasures that mankind could experience available for your choosing if you just went by what these vocal individuals said. Some of this was the natural resistance against change, the new and the different, but some came from the sadly often justified worry that arises when a large number of the male of the species gathers. The reality was far, far tamer. Just lonely, bored teens and preteens looking for some meaning in life, grasping at the enjoyment offered a quarter at a time by this amazing new invention, the video game and we best enjoyed it at our local video arcade. It was a space for us, an industry built around us. It was ours. We were safe. No one tried to indoctrinate, intoxicate, abduct, or corrupt us. Our lives, by and large, were not adversely affected by anything that happened at the video arcade. No one was harmed in the making of these memories. By the mid-1980s, the video game fad had mostly peaked. Many of the arcades that had sprung up began to close shop as attendance fell. Part of this cycle of boom and bust can be attributed to the growth of the home video game console with the Atari, ColecoVision, and Intellivision home gaming systems and reasonably extensive games for those becoming widely available. Video arcades are still around and are liable to be for many years, but they are not what they were in the early days of the industry. Places that allowed us to join with other like-minded individuals, a place of magic and mystery, of comrades and quarters, a place that your mom didn't really like but was safe enough and it got you stinking kids out of the house for a while. She guessed it was fine. I had my first cigarette out behind Rudy's Fun Palace in 1983.
You have been out of time with Moot.